to verse 18. Ah, ah, no. To the word of God, Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 18. 
Verse 18, we find the following words. And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Then immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. Mending their nets. He called them. And immediately. They left. The boat. And their father. And followed. Him. Thank you for standing for the reading of God's word. This morning, we're going to continue in the series of lessons on Jesus, the making, the mind, and the ministry. And today, our lesson will have its focus with this thought, the greatest concern of God. The greatest concern of God. As I mentioned earlier during our time of prayer, the preacher tries his best to be in the stream of what God is doing at his geographic location, in his season, and in his time. And being limited and faltering and weak and feeble as mankind is, I have no idea all of what God is doing. But many times the Holy Spirit, believing I'm led by him, he confirms that which road I'm on with things that are going on around me. As we saw, without any interaction from me, the Bible study or the Sunday school lessons line right up with this whole work of evangelism. We saw in Matthew 9, 35 through Matthew 10, 1, it was all about getting into the harvest. The Holy Spirit is speaking to the church. He's speaking specifically to our church. He's got a greater work that I don't know about, but for now I know that he's laying heavy and hard on my heart about evangelism for New Zion. Amen. Amen. And so before I get into our text today, I want to read to you a parable. I found this parable by some studies that I... um, was listening to and reading from a pastor in California by the name of John MacArthur. 
he was reading the Presbyterian journal and he found this parable and it goes like this. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut and there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea and with no thought for themselves went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful life-saving station. So it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and give their time and their money and their effort for the support of his work. New boats were bought and new life-saving crews were trained and the little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots and beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations, and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club held its initiations. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast and the hired crews brought in loads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick and some of them had black skin and some had yellow skin. The beautiful new club was considerably messed up. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. 
Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told if they wanted to save the lives of various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast a little ways, which they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that occurred in the old one. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that coast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. Amen. That is a sad parable for those life-saving stations that as they became more beautiful, they became more worthless. And this parable is not just sad for the life-saving stations along that coast. But this is an accurate picture of our churches today. Our churches start out as missions and they're, they're crude. They're, they start out as, 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 if you will, storefronts and little raggedy buildings. But the work of the ministry is great. And then as they become popular and more saints see what's going on, they want to be part of the action, and in their zeal to make the place prettier, they get caught up in materialism, and then the work ends. But today, I want us to realize that it's not about making the building more comfortable for us, but that we are life-saving stations. And this, I contend, is the greatest concern of God. When we go to our text, verse 18, Jesus never intended to save the world alone. Verse 18, he never intended to save the world alone. And Jesus walking by the sea of Galilee saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. In the 
context of this passage, we have learned on previous weeks that John the Baptist had set everything in motion. He was the light, but he wasn't the light. He was a light that would shine light on the light who is Jesus Christ. And we found that John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who will take away at the sins of the world. And then we found that John was in prison, and when Jesus heard that, he began his ministry, not going to Jerusalem where all of the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees were, but he went north instead of south to Galilee. He went to the place of Gentiles. He went to the place of ruggedness and of simple folk. And we find that he had a mission when he got there. We found that scripture were fulfilled that he would go there by the prophet Isaiah. But now today we are starting to look at what he was going to Galilee to do. First and foremost, he was getting ready to build his team. Now, there's something else instructive here about verse 18. If you look at this verse outside of the context of the four Gospels, we might believe this is the first encounter that Jesus had with Peter and Andrew. But this was not the first encounter because John chapter 1 allows us to see that Jesus had met them before. When John the Baptist was doing his ministry, Peter and Andrew became disciples of John the Baptist. And in that first chapter, it shows us that there were two disciples with John the Baptist. And Jesus came up to them, and at that time, John the Baptist said, look, the Passover lamb of God. And when John said these things, they followed John no more. They followed John the Baptist no more and they began to follow Jesus. And Jesus turned seeing them following him and asked them the question, what is it that you seek? And they said, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. The Bible says they stayed with him a day. So they had familiarity with Jesus. But we find here in Matthew chapter 4 that they didn't stay with him that time. But they went back to fishing. You know, that's a picture of the church too. Because, you know, we come to Christ originally and we start to learn of him. We become his disciples but we can still go back to fishing. Right. I mean, we, we start to learning of him, but our commitment level to following him is not there yet because we've got to find out where he's going. Right. But as time passes, and it may be many years for some or never for others, that we finally make a secondary commitment to say, now I'm going to start following you, Lord. I'm going to start putting aside some things so that I can go where you want me to go. So we look at our text and we find that Jesus never intended to save the world alone. And that goes for the churches today that when God puts a leader over his flock, the leader's 
job is not to save the world himself. It's not even to save the community is what he's in. Do you know what the pastor really is? All he really is is an equipment manager. I get y'all's equipment together and get it all fixed up and y'all can put it all and go out into the world. Yes, there will be time that I witness myself as well as you, but my primary job is to feed the flock of God so that you can be equipped to do the work of what? Ministry. Amen. Is that not what the Bible says? So I am gifted to equip you to do the work of ministry. And as a byproduct, because I am a follower of Christ too, I will do some witnessing as well. But God never meant for the pastor to do it alone. Just like he didn't mean for Jesus to do it alone. Amen. Amen. I heard a study that talked about if there were 1.6 billion people in the world and there was only one Christian, if that one Christian within a year made another disciple, and that disciple made another disciple and it multiplied. Within 30 years, all the world could be saved. All the world could be made a disciple. But I hear in your minds that, well, wait, there's some that will not be saved. Yes, that is true. So we just use a theoretical. If everyone were to be saved, 1.6 billion people in 30 years could be saved. In one person's lifetime, the whole world. So what do we do with a land that has far greater than millions of Christians? How quickly should we be able to reach the whole world for Jesus? But the statistics is showing us that we are receding, that the numbers are more outside than in. And that the people of God are not being actively engaged in the work of ministry. There was another statistic that came out that there was somewhere around 90 to 95 percent of all confessing evangelicals had not won one person to the Lord. That's a problem and that is the greatest concern of God. God did not lead, uh, leave us here to make country clubs. He didn't leave us here to make buildings so that we're comfortable in wearing our wonderful suits and being together and talking the same talk and walking the same walk. But he has called us to a mission of going out into a harvest that's white with those who need to know Jesus Christ and not just to hear a message every now and then, but to be discipled. It's hard work, but it's good work. And it's the greatest concern of God. Now moving to our next verse, we see that Jesus never intended to save primarily from a pulpit. I, I know a lot of times the way we think about evangelism is going and telling somebody to come to church and listen to my pastor preach. That's good, but that's not what Jesus intended. If we look at our text, 
Verse 19 says, then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus didn't say, follow me and I'll let you be spectators of me doing the fishers and fishing the men. But he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Jesus is about equipping his children to do the work of evangelism. Every believer in Christ has the capacity to be an evangelist. He who wins souls is wise. This is a message that must be preached. This is a message that must be followed because it is the greatest concern of God. Do you realize that when the conversations were in heaven about what to do about the sin condition in the life of his creation, what did he do? He sent his only begotten son to die in our place. This situation is so serious that Jesus, the second one in the Trinity, died himself for us. So this whole situation of lost is the greatest concern of God. There is no greater sacrifice than God giving his only begotten son that the whosoever would believe on him and should not what? Perish. But have what? Everlasting life. The greatest concern of God. So when we look at our text, we realize is that God is in the business of making evangelists. He's in the business of making and equipping saints for the ministry of evangelism. If we really think about this closely, we were once out there. We were once out there doing what the world is doing. But we have somehow gotten in our comfort zones of our churches and our religious lives and gotten scared some reason of the world that we came from. We used to stay out all night popping our fingers and shaking our rear ends and and we didn't even get started till 10 o'clock. But now we're afraid of the same people we used to party with. I can't go out there and fool with them folks. You know, they dangerous. I mean, you really better have yourself together We didn't have ourselves together then. We didn't even have the Holy Ghost. But we weren't afraid at all. See, God is looking for folks to be obedient, and then he'll show his power. See, we think that evangelism is something we just got to keep learning, keep learning, keep learning, keep learning. And then once we feel like we've graduated from evangelism high, then we're ready to do the work. But evangelism is caught more than it's taught. We can teach on it, but you don't can't, it it doesn't make any sense until you start doing it. There's nothing like the exhilaration and experience of going outside into this world and talking to folks about Jesus Mm -hmm. and compelling folks to come to the Lord. Amen. And so this is caught, not what? Taught. Mm -hmm. We do some teaching, but you got to do some doing to get better at this work. Amen. Amen. So we look at this text 
And we see as well that in verse 20, Jesus never intended to wait on men to finish their careers before they begin working for him. Look at verse 20. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Immediately left their nets and followed him. You know, sometimes we say, well, you know, I, I, I want to be part of the mission for the Lord. I want to be part of the church. I want to get involved. But right now, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm working on my career. I, you know, I'm trying to get my job stable. You know, I, I'm working to get things in order. And I, and I just need more time to get that ready. When will that be ready? When, when, when will there not be problems with jobs? It doesn't matter how skilled you are, how experienced. Jobs are playing out all the time. When, when will things be perfect that you don't have to worry about your career no more? Now you can focus on the Lord. We know very well that when we're dealing with the things of the Lord, that the job is always pulling at us to give more of our time to them. And not to the Lord. They're not thinking about the Lord. They're thinking about their profit line. Which is what they're about. They're in business. But we are children of God. And something should have changed. Remember he said. Jesus said to them. He saw them as fishermen. But he said follow me. And I'll make you fishers of men. He changed their vocation. From fishers of fish. To fishers of men. And we have, must understand that our job and our careers and our skills and our abilities and the positions that we hold is not the end in itself. Those to us as believers, the thing has been flipped. Those are avenues by which we are in our true vocation, which are fishers of men. It is outside in the common marketplace is where we make relationships with those who are outside of the commonwealth of Israel so that we can win souls to Christ. It's flipped now. When we go to our jobs, we go to our jobs to work as working unto the Lord. We do our best on our job to give worship to God, but also being very alert to see what God is doing on our job, on how he's building relationships with us and those so that we may win some to the Lord. Amen. So that's the kind of thinking we should have when we go to work, not letting work be the end and all, but an avenue to reach out and do our true vocation, which is winning souls to the Lord. Amen. Amen. Now, in our next couple of verses, verses 21 through 22, Jesus never intended to wait on men to finish working with their families. Verse 21. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. Mending their nets, he called them. And immediately they left 
the boat and their father and followed him. This is the second call. And this is the second call for the disciples to now get about the business of the Lord. I know sometimes we say, well, I've, I, you know, I've got to finish taking care of my parents and my, my elders. I've got to take care, finish taking care of my children. But this text lets us see that the relationships we have with our family should not hinder us from doing the will of the master. Because after all, this is the greatest concern of God, that we be evangelists. And we see in this text that when he called those sons of Zebedee, they immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. Now the call of the 12 disciples would be somewhat different than our call today. But in another way, it is still the same. That we must not allow our relationships whether it's with mother or father, husband or wife, children, uncles, aunts, cousins, friends, get in the way of what God is calling us to be. And this text allows us to know that after we become Christians and start to learn of the Lord, which we're learning about the mind of Christ right now that we ought to get in a hurry to get about the Father's business. But I know that it's easy to get caught up in the worries and the travails of everyday life. But this text is allowing us to see that Jesus is calling for something greater. Even when I accepted the call to this pasture, I had multiple jobs. I had a business. And I had to make a decision. Was I going to keep trying to do my business as well and try to pastor? I had to make a decision to let something go. And I had to shut my business down. Yes, I still have another job as well. But if I had tried to keep that business going as well, it would get in the way of me trying to pastor this flock. And Jesus would not be happy with that. But it calls for sacrifice, saints. At whatever level of ministry you're at, and everybody's at one level or another, it calls for sacrifice. It calls for days when you're tired to still move on for the Lord. Because he was tired one day. He was tired one day in the garden of Gethsemane. He was tired when he was praying for us and he was praying for the will of the master and blood was coming down from his brow. He was sweating like, like drops of blood over the anguish of the work that was before him. He was tired, but he pressed on. He said if there was any other way that this cup could be passed from him, he said, but not my will, but thy will be done. We have to look at our lives in anguish and look at all of the things that are going on in our lives. Our tiredness, our jobs, careers, friendships, relationships, family, and anything else that gets in the way of us serving the Lord. And have to say, not my will, Lord, 
but thy will be done. I know I'm tired. I know my husband is giving me trouble every time I try to do for the Lord. I know my wife is, but not my will. Thy will be done. And Jesus, as he prayed, knew that he was getting ready to be betrayed by one of his own. One of the 12, he said, I know who I chose, but one of you is a devil. Yeah, I know sometimes it's hard to work in the church because there's some hypocrites in here too because we ain't arrived there yet. I know sometimes folks say stuff about you that they shouldn't, but you know what? Not my will, but thy will be done. The next time you decide that you want to give it up and throw in the towel, don't you forget Jesus. Because if he had a gave it up and throw it in the towel in the garden of Gethsemane, we wouldn't be here today. But he said, not my will, but thy will be done. And the story went on to find out that even one of his own betrayed him with a kiss. Sometimes folks are going to do things in the church to hurt you, but you got to keep going for the Lord. Your will may be to quit and to fold up your towel and go home. But not our will, but thy will be done. When they took our Jesus to a kangaroo court and they started to try him in Annas' court, he could have called down angels, but he said, not my will, but thy will be done. In that kangaroo court, they moved him on to Caivas' court. It was a kangaroo trumped up court who wasn't about nothing but lies and deceit. Jesus could have said, angels come down and destroy him, but not my will, but thy will be done. They marched him on to the Sanhedrin in another trumped up kangaroo court full of lies and deceit. But he never said a mumbling word. He was like a lamb before its shearers. Not my will, but thy will be done. And Jesus, they marched him on to another kangaroo court. They marched him to the court of Pilate. And Pilate said that he saw no fault in him. But Pilate was a coward. That Pilate was afraid of the Jews because he was afraid that they would tell Caesar that he wasn't doing his job. So Pilate, in his cowardice, tried to find a way out. He tried to wash his hands. He sent Jesus to another kangaroo. And he's also called a fox. And his name is Herod. And Herod, that old fox, sent him back to Pilate. Still in kangaroo courts. And now the six kangaroo courts. With that old coward, Pilate himself. And the blood of Jesus is on his hands. Regardless of how many times he tried to wash him. He said, crucify him. He asked him, who do you want, Barabbas or Jesus? And the Jews said, give us Barabbas. But Jesus, never saying a mumbling word, was beat all night long. They whipped him 
till he was unrecognizable. Not my will, but thy will be done. In light of that, children, is our sacrifice all that much? Is anybody with a cat of nine tails whipping off our flesh? So shall we say, not my will, but thy will be done. But the story didn't end there. They put his own cross on his shoulders. And they marched him down the Via Della Rosa. But he was so emaciated, weak, that he fell with that cross for you and for me. They find a man standing around by the name of Simon. And they had him to carry Jesus' cross. But they kept on whipping and they kept on marching down the Via Della Rosa to outside of the walls of Jerusalem. See, even them hypocrites at the Jerusalem council, even they didn't want the blood inside the camp. So they marched him out to a hill called Golgotha's Hill. And on that hill, they put nails in his hands. And they put nails in his feet. But they made a mistake, saints of God, that they lifted him up. And he said, if I be lifted up, that I will draw all men unto me. And Jesus is still doing the drawing today. And he wants to use me and he wants to use you to draw men, women, boys, and girls to the saving faith of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. But that's not the end of the story. He was on that cross from the third to the ninth hour. From the sixth to the ninth hour, darkness was all over the land. And at the ninth hour, my Jesus and your Jesus, he died for you and for me. They took him down from that old rugged cross and they put him in a borrowed tomb. He was in that grave all night Friday. He was in that grave all day Saturday. He was in that grave all night Saturday night. But it was early before the crickets began to sing. It was early before the frogs began to crow. It was early before the dew began to fall. He got up with all power in his hand. He says all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. And he tells us to go ye therefore in all the world seeking to save that which is lost. And after a 40 day layover, he stepped out on a cloud and went back to glory. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and for me. He knows our situations. He knows our concerns. But he's got power if you call on his name to overcome them. Not my will, but thy will be done. Because one of these old days, he's coming back. And who shall he find faithful? Shall he find us in the work of the master? Telling folks about Jesus Christ. Or shall he find us in our life-saving station? 
our country club, yeah. sitting up looking good and pretty, but never telling nobody about the Lord. Yeah. I don't want to be in that number. Yeah. I want to be in a number that's saying to make those disciples because the time is winding up. We got to be about the work of ministry because the Lord has called us to this. Not my will, but thy will be done. Hallelujah. Amen. 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 And at this time, the doors of the church are open. There may be somebody here today who's heard about this Jesus today and following him. And you know you've heard about him, but you never let him become part of you. You never said, Lord, forgive me of my sins, O God. Lord, and come and live in me and teach me how to follow you. You never said, I want a relationship with you. I need a savior because I'm a sinner. Today is the day of salvation and you can get to know him today. It won't cost you nothing because Jesus has already paid it all. The Bible says God demonstrated his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, he died. You can come today. Come unto Jesus your mind come unto Jesus while you have time he will make your there's still plenty of good room. Amen. Amen.